All right. So we are recording this now. Um, so just a reminder that this is eligible for HRBA credit. The code will be given to you at the end, and we have been instructed to let you know you only get the code if you watch it live. So we can't unfortunately include it in the recording or give it to you later. Uh, another incentive to join us today is we are offering a goodie prize. So if you want to be entered into the draw for that, all you have to do is post about the webinar and tag Redner Law on any social media platform. That uh, eligibility ends on Friday. We'll do the draw next week. So if you want to be entered, uh, feel free to do that. And uh, it'll be an exciting Redner Law prize. So as far as the content for today, we're talking about the when and where we work, uh, which you know, one interesting consequence of the pandemic that we've all lived through and hopefully is in the rearview mirror is that it has forced all of us to reconsider the nature of work in our lives, where we work, when we work. And you know, perhaps one benefit is we're not all assuming that everyone has to be in the office Monday to Friday, nine to five, and that's your work time. And then your personal time is separate. We've seen a lot more flexibility, a lot more demand for flexibility. Uh, a lot of our clients are having trouble recruiting people if they don't offer flexibility in terms of work location, whether it's remote, whether it's hybrid or otherwise. And also, um, you know, we've seen a movement towards reconsidering the work week. Uh, why is it five days on, two days off? You know, is that the most productive work schedule? And there are, there are many people, including Dr. Tyler Arnell, who I've presented on this subject before, who have done, done studies and looked at the research and shown that, you know, five days on, two days off, is not necessarily the most productive. And the stats seem to show that people working four days a week are often more productive than those working five, which is somewhat counterintuitive, but the data seems to bear it out. Um, so there's different ways of doing things like the four day work week. And we've seen some brave companies, including some of our clients who've tried it, uh, different ways to do it. So we'll talk about that. Uh, there are lots of positives there, but being lawyers, we will talk about some of the risks that you should be aware of with that, but also with nature of, uh, or with issues arising out of remote work and hybrid work, especially now that we're, again, hopefully past the pandemic and it's not a situation where you have to have people working remotely. But if you are, uh, not necessarily a bad thing by any means, but it does create some legal issues that people should be aware of. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over to our first presenter, Brittany Taylor, who's a partner in the firm and she's going, oh, sorry, first thing I do the disclaimer, should have done that first. Uh, we are lawyers. So just a reminder, this does not constitute legal advice. And if you want legal advice on your specific situation, we'd encourage you to reach out to us. We'd be happy to speak with you and see if we can help. Uh, also, just a reminder that things do change quickly. So this information that you get today is current as of November 1, 2023. Uh, and lastly, that the materials are not to be reproduced. We are, of course, Happy to share the slide deck. And as I mentioned before, the recording will be available, uh, but please don't reproduce the materials. So now I'm gonna skip over the agenda and get right to Brittany since I've teased enough already. So Brittany Taylor is gonna talk about hybrid and remote work and some of the uh, statutory and other legal, legal considerations. Thanks very much, Stuart, and thank you everyone for joining us today. We're really excited to have you here. Um, so as Stuart said, I'm going to talk about the statutory considerations when you've got a hybrid or remote work environment. So let's jump right into it. So whether an employee is working in the office or working remotely, their employment is going to be governed by statutes, including things like minimum standards legislation, human rights legislation, health and safety legislation, and so on and so forth. 
with a remote worker, one of the first questions that often arises is which laws are going to govern the employment relationship? So for example, let's say you've got an employer who's headquartered in Ontario, but you've got an employee working remotely from Manitoba. The question that arises is which laws apply, the laws of Ontario or the laws of Manitoba? Now, generally speaking, the rule of thumb is where the employee is working is going to govern which laws apply. So in that example, it would be the laws of Manitoba that apply. Now, there can be exceptions to this. So, for example, a situation where an employee is relocating on a temporary basis, like let's say they're normally based in Ontario, but they're going to work in Florida for two months with the full intention of returning to Ontario afterwards. In that case, the work in Florida could be considered a continuation of the work in Ontario. So that employee may still have the benefit and protection of, for example, the Employment Standards Act. However, that does not also mean that Florida's employment laws will not also apply to the employee during that time. So that's something that employers need to be aware of. Now, one quick thing I want to mention, it is outside the scope of this presentation and outside the scope of our advice as we're not tax lawyers, but employers with remote workers will also have to consider tax considerations when they've got remote workers working in other jurisdictions as different tax and withholding rates may apply depending on where the employee is working. So just keep that in mind as a practical consideration. Okay, let's move on and talk about um, location-specific statutory issues that you need to be aware of. So most provinces and territories in Canada, except for Quebec, which is really doing its own thing, have a lot of similarities when it comes to employment-related legislation. But there are going to be some differences that you want to pay attention to. Consider even the basics. What's the minimum wage that applies? What are the maximum hours of work per day or week in that jurisdiction? When does overtime kick in? Are there categories of employees who are exempt from overtime and so on and so forth? There can be small differences here that actually add up to significant differences. So, for example, in Ontario, overtime kicks in after an employee has worked 44 hours in a week, whereas in other jurisdictions such as in B.C., Manitoba, Alberta and Saskatchewan, overtime may become payable after an employee has worked eight hours in a day. So very different requirements there. Another example, in Ontario, an employee is entitled to three unpaid sick days per year, whereas in British Columbia, employees are entitled to five paid sick days per year. So you can see how these small differences can really add up. Now, I want to pause for a moment and talk briefly about some specific unique requirements that we have in Ontario, including something new that, that just came to be as of October 26th, and that is the expansion of the definition of establishment under the Employment Standards Act for purposes of determining whether a mass termination has occurred or not. So as of October 26th, employees who work from home, who work remotely, are now included when determining whether or not a mass termination has occurred of 50 or more employees. Um, and they're entitled to the same enhanced notice as in-office employees if a mass termination has occurred. So that's a new change in Ontario that applies to remote workers that I just wanted to highlight. Two other different requirements that we have in Ontario are policy requirements. Everyone is probably aware of the fact that we had two new policy requirements come into effect in 2022, the policy on disconnecting from work and the policy on electronic monitoring. These are Ontario specific policies and that we don't see these requirements in other jurisdictions. So if you're an employer based in Ontario and you have these policies, but you also have remote workers who may be working outside of the province, one of the things that you're going to need to determine is whether or not you want these Ontario specific policies to apply outside of Ontario. And if not, you need to make that really clear in the policies that you've drafted. 
All right, let's move on because there are differences that exist outside of minimum standards legislation as well. And I'm going to talk about three categories of legislation that, that this could apply to. So the first is privacy legislation. Ontario does not have privacy legislation, which is applicable to employees of private sector organizations, but both British Columbia and Alberta do. They both have a Personal Information Protection Act, which governs the collection, use, and protection of employee personal information. In British Columbia, we have an additional requirement for a privacy policy in line with the Personal Information Protection Act that has to include a complaint process, so unique requirements in those jurisdictions. The second category I want to talk about is pay equity or pay transparency legislation. So Ontario has pay equity legislation. British Columbia has recently introduced pay transparency legislation. What this legislation does is it prohibits employers in British Columbia from asking job applicants what they were paid at prior positions. It also prevents them from penalizing in any way an employee who asks about their pay or reveals their pay to another employee or engages in other protected behaviors. And beginning as of today, as of November 1st, all employees in British Columbia or all employers in British Columbia must include the expected pay or expected pay range on all public job advertisements. There's going to be some additional requirements coming into effect with respect to pay transparency reporting. That's only going to apply to employers of certain sizes and it's being rolled out in successive years. The third and final category I want to talk about where you can see differences is accessibility legislation. So Ontario was the first province to pass accessibility legislation, but since then, Manitoba, Nova Scotia, BC, and the federal government have all passed their own legislation. Now, in some of these jurisdictions, the standards or the requirements underneath the legislation are still being developed. And in other jurisdictions, the requirements don't yet apply to private sector businesses. So we haven't seen a lot of impact for employers outside of Ontario yet. But employers do need to keep on top of developments and ensure that they have their proper policies and procedures in place if they have employees in these jurisdictions. Okay, so let's move on to a practical conversation that was very legal. But honestly, once you figure out which jurisdiction applies to your remote worker and ensure that you're familiar with the laws that apply in that jurisdiction, there are the very practical realities of how do you make sure you comply with them. The reality is, is that ensuring that you meet your obligations with respect to remote workers can be easier said than done. Consider the challenges that you're going to face in enforcing certain requirements, such as mandatory breaks. So, for example, in Ontario, most workers need to take a break after five hours of work, and it's the employer's responsibility to ensure that happens. How do you do that in a remote work environment where somebody is not physically in the office with you? So one of the things that we recommend that our clients do is include this requirement directly in their policies, whether that's a health and safety policy, whether that's a work from home policy. Another thing that you might consider doing is having regular wellness check-in with employees to ensure that they're complying with this requirement. And if there are barriers to them complying with this requirement to see how you can remove those. Uh, similarly, another thing that you need to be worried about is keeping track of hours of work. Um, this is important not just because you have record keeping obligations as an employer, um, but also because you want to make sure that these employees are not working hours in excess of the daily or weekly maximums that apply in the applicable jurisdiction. It's also hugely relevant from an overtime perspective. The reality is that even where an employee works overtime without authorization, they're still entitled to be paid for that time. And if you as the employer are not keeping track of their hours, it's very difficult to defend against a claim that they have unpaid overtime owing.
And finally, another thing that we've seen employers struggle with with remote workers is making sure that they take their minimum statutory vacation time. I'm not going to touch on this at all because Alex is going to do a deep dive into this topic in his session. So we can move on to my last slide, which is dealing with unique issues in two other um, um, legislative contexts. The first is with respect to health and safety. And one of the questions that we get a lot from employers with remote workers is, how am I supposed to ensure a safe work environment in, a, in an environment that I have no control over, right? This is the employee's home. The Occupational Health and Safety Act in Ontario does contain a general requirement that employers are going to take reasonable steps to ensure a safe working environment for workers. But there is actually an exclusion in Section 3, which, which excludes work performed in a private residence. So that suggests that the Occupational Health and Safety Act may not apply fully to remote workers. However, from our perspective, that doesn't mean that an employer should not be doing anything at all to ensure safety. We recommend that employers consider what reasonable steps they can take to ensure health and safety of a remote worker, such as developing a work-from-home checklist for workers to assess their workspace and address any hazards that might apply. This could include pointing out ergonomic considerations if you've got a worker sitting at their desk all day, or even just ensuring that workers are aware that they shouldn't be giving out their home address to customers or other third parties. Uh, these are some of the things that, that we've assisted clients in developing. The other reason that workplace safety should be a consideration, even if it's not required by the Occupational Health and Safety Act, is because of workplace injuries. When an employee is injured at home in the course of performing their work, the Workplace Safety and Insurance Board has stated that the employee and the employer have the same rights and responsibilities as if it was an injury that happened in the workplace. So if the injury is work-related, the employer still has an obligation to report the injury and the employee will be able to file a claim. Finally, under the heading of, of health and safety, I want to touch briefly on harassment. Um, an employer's obligations with respect to harassment are found or grounded in the Occupational Health and Safety Act, and they may not apply to remote workers fully. However, it is a good practice to ensure that these requirements apply across the board. You don't want some of your workers being trained on how to identify and report harassment and some of the workers just having no idea about any of this. Now, practically, harassment can be harder for managers to identify when an employee is not working in the office. So that makes it even more important to ensure that remote workers are aware of how to identify harassment and what to do if it happens. How do they report it? Who do they go to for help? Finally, human rights legislation. This applies equally to remote workers as in-office in workers. So even where the employee is not physically in the workplace, they still have a right to a, a, a workplace that's free from discrimination and the duty to accommodate continues to apply. This could include all the same types of accommodation that you would provide in an in-office environment. So it might mean purchasing specific ergonomic equipment for their home office, allowing them to work different hours, taking more frequent breaks, anything that would apply, again, in an in-office environment. Now, just like with harassment, remote workers you know, the fact that they're not there, that you're not actually being able to engage with them uh, on a day to day basis can make it more challenging to identify if a worker is struggling or if there might be an issue. So, again, it is really important that employees are aware that they can ask for help and how they can go about doing this. And again, regular wellness checks or check ins with remote workers is one of the ways that you can try to stay on top of these issues. That's it for me. I'm going to turn it over to Nadia, who's going to talk about constructive dismissal. Thanks so much, Brittany. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. So 
I'm going to cover two topics today. The first is about remote and hybrid workers and returning back to the office. Now, this is undoubtedly one of the biggest challenges that employers and employees have been facing since the pandemic. You may be an employer that wants people back in the office, but employees just don't want to return. Or maybe you're an employee who's working perfectly fine from home and is suddenly being required to attend the office in person. Now, one of the common questions we get from employers and employees alike is, can employers force employees back to the office? And the answer, like most answers in employment law is it depends. So generally speaking, employees cannot refuse to return to the office unless they have an existing right to work remotely. They're refusing unsafe work. They have a legitimate need for accommodation based on a protected ground under human rights legislation, such as disability or if they're on a leave of absence. So what does this mean in practice? Let's say you are an employer and have allowed your employees to work from home, uh, maybe during the pandemic and beyond. Suppose there was no communication regarding expectations to return to in-person work in the future. Now, the risk is that the right to work from home may have become or may become entrenched at some point. And there's no hard and fast rule about this. But we have helped many of our employer clients avoid circumstances where they lose the ability to dictate where their employees will work for them, simply due to a lack of proper communication and documentation. And we've helped our clients effectively communicate expectations so that it's clear remote work is temporary and that the company expects to have employees back at the office, if that's really the case even if that's on a hybrid model in the near future. So effective communication and documentation are really your best friends as an employer to maximize your rights and flexibility and minimize potential liability. And we, we can help you to do that. Now, employers must also be mindful of the potential need for accommodation. Employers are obligated to accommodate an employee's legitimate needs, based on a protected ground under human rights legislation, such as disability or family status. But employers are not obligated to accommodate an employee's preference. They're only obligated to provide a reasonable accommodation. So if work from home is the only reasonable accommodation under the circumstances, then the employer can't force the employee to return to the office. But if it's simply the employee's preference, then an employer can impose return to the office. And just like in the work from home situation, we help both employers and employees navigate the accommodation process as well to ensure that they meet their legal obligations and that they get what they're entitled to. Now, what are the options for addressing a work from home request? You can either have a hybrid work model where you alternate between remote and in-person work, or you can have a purely remote work model, whether it's temporary or permanent. And obviously, this is going to be based on the nature of the work that employees do at your organization and what your business needs are at any given time. 
And we assist both employers and employees with such work from home requests and navigating the arrangement so that they can be strategic without sacrificing their rights. Now on the next slide, I'm gonna be discussing some of the considerations to keep in mind when it comes to remote work. Now, first and foremost, remember that employment relationships are legal relationships. And it is surprising how many times there will be situations where an, an individual will consider reviewing a contract or having a contract in place for other types of scenarios, like, you know, like a landlord tenant relationship. But when it comes to an employment relationship, people tend to forget that and they um, often will just rely on verbal offers and acceptance of employment, and there won't be anything in writing. So it is very important to make sure that you put your arrangements in writing before the remote work starts. And this is not only limited to having effective contracts in place, but also ensuring that you have a remote work policy. And you want to do this before the remote work actually starts, not, you know, somewhere in the middle, because then it gets a little bit more complicated. You still can, but it's a lot better if you do it in advance um, so that you have more protection there. Secondly, consider the employee's work location. Now, Brittany already covered this, but keep in mind that if the employee is working from home and they're located, let's say, in a different province, the laws that apply may be uh, different. So you have to be mindful of that. And if you're not careful, you may inadvertently breach the statute and be on the hook for liability. Also consider what equipment is required for the remote employees to be able to do their job from home. Who provides and pays for what? And Brittany touched on this as well. Consider the health and safety aspect in a remote work environment. Consider how you will manage your remote workers. How are you going to ensure that people are working from home uh, properly? Will you be monitoring your employees' productivity electronically? And finally, keep in mind that if you have nothing in writing regarding remote work and your expectations as an employer, then recalling employees back to the office may constitute a constructive dismissal of their employment, which means you could be exposed to substantial liability amounting to up to two years of pay. And this is why we are big proponents of ensuring proper contracts and policies are in place to protect yourself from liability as an organization. Now, this is a great segue into the next topic, which is um, pivoting without constructive dismissal. So on the next slide- I'm just going to jump in a second, Nadia. Yeah. If I interrupt you, I'll let you wind up in a second. I saw we had a, a hand raised. I just want to remind everyone that we are going to leave time for Q&A at the end, but the Q&A box is already fairly active and we are trying to answer some question uh, by typing the response as we go. Uh, but if you do have a question, please put it into the, uh, the Q&A box. Sorry, Nadia. No problem at all. So- when it comes to constructive dismissal uh, and, and pivoting without constructive dismissal, it's important to 
briefly state what it is. So a constructive dismissal occurs when there's a unilateral and substantial change to a fundamental term or condition of employment. So what this really means is an employer imposing a big change on an employee that's relating to a key term of their employment relationship. So if it's a minor change, it's not going to constitute a constructive dismissal. But if it's a substantial change uh, that's, let's say, uh, relating to a reduction in compensation, let's say 20% reduction in compensation or, or more than 20% reduction in compensation, changes to work schedule, changes to duties, work location, and so on, that that can constitute constructive dismissal of an employee's employment. It can also occur even if an employee's compensation itself doesn't decrease. It can be caused by a failure to provide a healthy and safe work environment, including a failure to address harassment or bullying. So there are a lot of situations where an employee is subjected to, let's say, a toxic work environment, and that could be a constructive dismissal of their employment. So the result is the same as an outright dismissal. That is, the employee will be entitled to damages as if they have been dismissed outright. And in constructive dismissal scenarios, employers may also be exposed to additional liability if they were found to have engaged in bad faith conduct. So on the next slide, I'm going to talk a little bit about how you can avoid constructive dismissal as an employer? How do you make changes as an employer without attracting constructive dismissal claims? Now, I'm going to go back to something I said before, which is to remember that employment relationships are legal relationships. So you should use contracts and policies strategically. Now, how do you do that? First, you want to flex your discretion muscles. And I just love that phrase. I, I love using it because you want to ensure that you, uh, your contracts give you the flexibility to make changes. You want wording in the contract clearly giving the company discretion to make changes and noting that it will not constitute a constructive dismissal. And we regularly work with employers to ensure they have strong contracts in place, giving them that flexibility to effectively manage their business while complying with the law and reducing liability. Um, I, I'm sure Stuart's going to touch on this later, but we do offer HR checkups where we look at your contracts uh, free of charge and let you know how we can help you. So feel free to contact us if you're interested. Secondly, you want to get written consent for changes. So if the employee agrees to the change, then it is no longer a unilateral change and it won't be a constructive dismissal. So if you if and when you can, you want to make sure that you get those written consent for changes. Alternatively, you can give appropriate notice for changes and the appropriate notice would be equivalent to the notice that you would be required to give for termination. So make sure that you seek that legal advice from an employment lawyer before doing anything that might have legal implications, including um, you know, making substantial changes or proceeding with dismissal of any sort. 
Now, as we always say, if you think you need an employment lawyer, you probably do. If you don't already have an employment lawyer you're working with, feel free to reach out to us. And that's all for me for now. Um, and I will hand it off to uh, Stuart to introduce the next speaker. Great. Thanks, Nadia. And we will uh, keep moving along. And just a reminder to everyone, if you have questions, put them into the Q&A box. Uh, but next up is Jeffrey Lowe, who gets to talk about uh, a subject that's uh, exciting for many of us, the, the idea of the four-day work week. So Jeff can, can take the typical lawyer approach and tell us all the, uh, the risks involved in that type of thing. Yeah, thank you, Stuart. And yeah, unfortunately, this is not going to be a, a 10 minute presentation extolling the virtues of a shorter work week. Um, I think everybody can kind of put the two and two together themselves. Um, and just to indicate uh, my graphic at the start here, is it Friday? Yeah, we were having a discussion just internally beforehand. And it's going to be up to you as to what day you provide off if you are going to move to a four day work week. Um, my personal guidance is don't give somebody a Tuesday or a Wednesday because that just seems kind of cruel, but we'll leave it at that. Um, so yeah, I'm going to talk about the options for move to a four-day work week, um, the potential things to consider when implementing it and the potential outcomes of implementing it. Um, so the first of the options for a four-day work week, and this is three examples that we've come across. And as usual, our slide deck has changed to one, one, one. This is supposed to be one, two, three. It's not three of the same option. Um, so this is options that we've come across in our research and that our clients have, uh, have implemented. Uh, the first is the 180-100 model. This is where employees receive 100% of their normal pay, work 80% of the time, so like four eight-hour days for the work week, and give 100% of their productivity. So they're working fewer days, but they're receiving the same amount of money and theoretically putting in the same amount of effort. The second is the, uh, the four times 10 hour day model. So we're working the same number of hours in the course of the week, only we're not working one day of the week. And so we're working four 10 hour days uh, for the same amount of pay. And theoretically, again, for the same amount of productivity. We've also encountered or also seen in research uh, four by nine hour days. Uh, the third option is the 180-80. So we, result, we have a reduction in the day, number of days work. So we're working four eight hour days. We're working the same number of hours uh, each day, but we're working fewer hours each week. Uh, the employee's pay decreases accordingly by 20%. And based on what my uh, my colleagues just discussed, people's, uh, there should be alarm bells going off in your head. And I'm going to talk about that in a second regarding this 20% decrease. Um, and theoretically, employees are going to be giving 100% uh, of their effort, but their production level is probably going to commensurately just decreased. So these are the options. And these are obviously just some of the options. There are other ways to implement this. Again, consult with a lawyer before you go forward. Um, but what are the potential implications uh, of implementing this? And as Nadia just went through in great detail, a constructive dismissal occurs when there is a unilateral substantial change to fundamental terms and conditions of employment. Uh, it's difficult to think of a more fundamental change to employment than the number of hours you work in a day, your compensation, or the number of days you work in a week. So theoretically, a transition to a four day work week is going to be a constructive dismissal. Um, and the potential exists that an employee may complain about this and may assert that they've been constructively dismissed. Now, nobody complains about a good change, but some employees may be hesitant to change and may want to push back on this. Um, and the result, as Nadia had went into detail, even if there's no income, there still can be a claim of constructive dismissal. And the result is the same as an outright dismissal. And then an employee may claim their entitlement to reasonable notice or severance pay as uh, people may refer to it as. So how do we go about implementing this in order to avoid these issues? Next slide. Thank you, Stuart. So uh, ideally, and again, as Nadia said, um, ideally there's going to be a provision in your employment agreement that's going to 
permit you to make reasonable unilateral changes to an employee's terms and conditions of employment without this constituting a constructive dismissal. As the saying goes, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time is today. So if you don't have this term in your employment agreement, and just to be clear, even if you think it's there, we highly recommend that you consult with your employment lawyer. You can call us about this um, in order to confirm that the language in your employment agreement is going to provide you with the authority to do this. The alternative to this is to get employee agreement at the time. And this agreement is going to be a document that's going to set out the process by which we make the transition to a four-day work week and the details of the four-day work, work week itself in terms of uh, what day is not going to be worked anymore, uh, if there's an increase to hours, when the increase to hours is going to kick in and what the increase to hours is going to look like. Uh, this is also going to address and consider any potential issues such as a requirement or request for accommodation, which I'm going to talk about in a second, uh, so that employees are cognizant of their ability to request accommodation if that needs to be done. Um, this is also going to be something that the employer can use to their own benefit in terms of protecting their rights, again, as Nadia went into about um, ensuring that a change can be put back into norm, the normal state of affairs of need, if uh, needs be. So the, the goal is ultimately to retain flexibility so that this document, the agreement that the employee is going to receive is going to indicate that the move to a four-day work week may not be a permanent change and the employer retains the discretion to move back to a five-day work week and the process by which that this change can take place if they want to make the reversion back. Um, so what to consider when the four-day work week is up and running? What kind of potential legal issues are we going to be potentially dealing with? Uh, the first is human rights. Um, so if we're dealing with a situation where we're increasing the number of hours we're working in a day, we're going from eight hours to 10 hours in a day or nine hours in a day, we may encounter situations where employees are uh, dealing with family status issues. So maybe they have childcare issues or elder care issues that mean that they can only work eight hours in a day. Maybe they have some manner of condition that makes it difficult for them to work over eight hours in a day. So you may be encountering requests for accommodation in the course of the move to the four day work week and the extended work day. Just keep this in mind and be prepared to respond to a reasonable request for accommodation if needs be. Uh, the second question, this is something, it's overtime. This is something that Brittany touched on. Um, when you're making a move, again, if you're moving to a, a longer workday, so if you're moving to a nine or 10 hour workday where you were in an eight hour workday previously, consider whether there's a statutory obligation to provide and pay overtime for working more than eight hours in a day. Um, if this exists and Brittany listed off the provinces, uh, Alberta, Manitoba, and British Columbia are all ones that I'm aware of. Um, there may be a provision in the statute that permits you to have somebody work more than eight hours in a day without having to pay them overtime for this time. Again, consult your employment lawyer and just confirm that you're not inadvertently breaching the statute by making this change. Another thing to consider is with, with an extended period of time, are we looking at an issue where there's a minimum period of time between shifts that is going to be affected? Uh, most employment statutes include a mandatory uh, period of time off between shifts. Again, if we're extending the period of time employees are working, is this gonna affect that? The final is looking at your own internal policy. Uh, maybe you're providing a greater right or benefit for an employee. So maybe you're in Ontario and overtime only kicks in after 44 hours, but your internal policy indicates that we're gonna pay overtime after only eight hours. Uh, again, check it, confirm it, and if necessary, revise the policy. A third thing to consider is vacation entitlement. Uh, most statutes provide for vacation to be taken in full weeks. And this is going to be based on the number of days in the course of the week. Um, Ontario's Employment Standards Act provides for an employee to be able to take vacation in individual days. Um, just make sure that you're providing an employee with the correct number of days of vacation. So if an employee is working on a four-day work week, they don't get to take five individual days of vacation. Um, there's a few more considerations in the next slide. Thank you, sir.
Um, further considerations, a dismissal entitlement. Again, this is a statutory and a common law thing. Statutes require notice of termination uh, as pay by based on weeks, uh, sorry, uh, pay weeks of compensation based on years of service. Uh, common law is also the same. This should match the work week in terms of compensation. If there's been a reduction in pay, make sure you're paying out the correct amount on dismissal. Uh, the, the final two things are in terms of eligibility. So will the change to a shorter work week in terms of uh, reduction in hours, so we go to a 32 or a 36 hour work week, is this going to impact employees eligibility for an, an EI? Um, so EI, as I'm aware, indicates that 40 hours is a standard work week. Um, if we move down to 32 hours, this is going to affect employees time work for benefit eligibility. Again, just something to keep in mind. And the final in terms of benefit eligibility is your own internal benefit policies. Um, these may have a definition for the minimum number of hours worked to constitute a part-time employee or a full-time employee. Again, keep this in mind and just confirm that by making the transition, you are not in fact taking people off benefit eligibility and reducing people to part-time benefit eligibility. Again, we're gonna be circling back to the concept of whether or not this is gonna constitute a constructive dismissal. Um, that's the extent of all the considerations I can think of. So I'm gonna hand it back to Stuart to uh, hand it to Alex. Awesome, thank you very much, Jeff. And so we've talked about when and where we work. So we're gonna finish off by talking about when we don't work. And uh, Alex Minkin is gonna take us through vacation entitlements, which are, as I've, I've been saying this for probably 25 years now, overly complicated in Ontario and, and probably just slightly less complicated in the rest of the rest of the provinces. So Alex, I'll let you take it away. Thanks, Stuart. Um... So as mentioned, in the last few years, we've seen a lot of changes in when and where we work, and there have also been changes in when we don't work. Several large companies have started to offer unlimited vacation entitlements. Other companies have implemented their own versions of enhanced vacation as a way to attract talent. Uh, today, I'm going to discuss some of the legal considerations that a company should think about when setting up their vacation policies for employees. So the first consideration is the statutory entitlements. Um, every province has their own employment standards legislation that contains minimum standards, and that includes minimum requirements for vacation and vacation pay. In Ontario, that's the Employment Standards Act, the ESA. Um, every other province has a similar piece of legislation. The requirements are slightly different. My focus today is going to be on Ontario, but we work with clients to be compliant in every province that they have employees. The minimum statutory requirements are just the minimum. Uh, companies can offer greater vacation entitlements as part of their employment contracts, and they may want to do so to attract talent and to be considered a choice employer. But an employer can never offer less than the minimum. Finally, I'm going to discuss some issues about how to calculate vacation pay and when it's required, which unfortunately is often misunderstood. So the first consideration is statutory entitlements. Um, in Ontario, there are two separate statutory entitlements, vacation pay and vacation time. Vacation pay is calculated as 4% of wages if the employee's period of employment is less than five years, and it's 6% of wages thereafter. The employee is entitled to vacation pay immediately upon starting employment. Um, now, as for vacation time, in Ontario, the entitlement is two weeks if the employee's period of employment is less than five years, and it's three weeks after those five years. This varies slightly by province. So these, um, these requirements are very similar in BC, Alberta, and Manitoba to what I described in Ontario. 
Uh, in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and PEI, the increase of six percent, the increase to six percent of wages and three weeks of vacation occurs after eight years rather than five years. Uh, in Newfoundland, the period is fifteen years. So there's going to be different requirements depending on where the employee is based. Um, vacation time in Ontario, in Ontario is mandatory. It's important to keep that in mind. The employee can't simply agree not to take vacation. They, they can't agree to just be paid instead of receiving vacation. That would be a breach of the ESA. Um, there's also no requirement for vacation to be paid vacation time. As long as the employee is receiving their vacation pay, the vacation itself doesn't need to be considered paid vacation. Um, the employer has options about how to pay the vacation pay. This can be, it can be added to each paycheck. It can be, um, it can be paid regularly. It can be banked and paid to the employee when they take their vacation. Um, for, for salaried employees, when, when a salaried employee has their vacation time banked and paid during vacation, this results in the employee having their salary extended during the vacation, essentially receiving paid vacation time. For employees that are working on an hourly basis, an employer can also choose to bank the vacation time and pay it during vacation. But sometimes for hourly employees, this can be more complicated. So some employers will simply choose to pay the vacation pay at regular intervals and have the vacation time be considered unpaid. Now, again, these were just the minimum statutory requirements. A contract of employment can always offer more than the statutory minimums. And if, if so, if that's the case, then the contractual entitlements will, will govern. But an employer can never offer less than the minimum statutory entitlements. As long as those minimum statutory entitlements are met, an employer has a lot of flexibility in terms of implementing their vacation policies. They can, this can include greater entitlements to paid vacation. They can include greater entitlements to unpaid vacation. Again, there's no requirement that all the vacation pay that's offered, that all the vacation time that's offered has to be paid vacation. Um, some companies have implemented unlimited vacation policies and one potential benefit to the employer with that is with respect to what happens when the employment ends. Normally, uh, when employment ends, uh, while the employee has, has a vacation balance owing, that balance has to be paid out. With unlimited vacation, there's not really a balance. So arguably, the only thing that has to be paid out is the minimum statutory amounts. Um, so this can be an advantage for employers in implementing unlimited vacation, as opposed to offering a fixed amount, which is a lot higher than the minimum requirements. Um, there, there's also been some studies suggesting that employees with unlimited vacation don't, don't necessarily take considerably more vacation than, than otherwise. Now, one very important point about vacation pay is that it's not limited to base salary alone. Um, it is paid on wages. And wages is defined as essentially and it's any monetary compensation that's paid to the employee, either pursuant to a contract of employment or, or pursuant to the ESA. It doesn't include tips, gifts, expenses, benefit plan contributions, and a few other exceptions. But outside of those exceptions, 4% or 6% vacation pay has to be added on to everything that the employee receives. And this includes commission payments. A lot of, a lot of people don't realize this. This includes commission payments in many cases. This will include bonuses. Um, with respect to bonuses, there is a specific exception for, quote, bonuses that are dependent on the discretion of the employer and that are not related to hours, production, or efficiency. 
So when it falls into that category, a purely discretionary bonus, when it falls into that category, vacation pay does not need to need to be added. But this exception is somewhat narrow, as some of these court decisions are, are going to show. So there's two cases that I'm going to mention that illustrate this point. Um, so in, in both the cases of Bain and Ramcharan, the court had to decide whether vacation pay was applicable to certain discretionary bonuses. These were bonuses that in the employment contract were called discretionary. They were, they were said to be purely in, in the discretion of the employer with, with no obligation to pay it. In Bain, the court found that while the bonus was discretionary, there were definite factors on which it was based, including performance. Whereas the exception only applies when a bonus is not related to hours, production, or efficiency. So the court in that case found that the exception did not apply, and vacation pay was payable on the discretionary bonus. Similarly, in Ramchara, the discretionary bonus was, it was said to be discretionary. It was, in fact, based on an achievement of corporate objectives and personal objectives, 20% being corporate and 80% being personal objectives. So again, the court found that while the bonus was called a discretionary bonus, it, it did not fall into that exception. And it was also subject to vacation pay. So these cases are, are meant to illustrate the point that vacation pay has a, a very broad application. It may apply to many more payments than, than you might think. It's certainly going to apply to commissions and other variable compensation that's not part of base salary. It may even apply to bonuses and even discretionary bonuses. Thank you, Alex. And that uh, brings us to the end of the formal part of the presentation. And one of the great things for, for those of you tuning in is you get a whole lot of information in a very short period of time. So I just want to thank you know Brittany, Nadia, Jeff, and Alex for covering a lot in a pretty succinct manner. Uh, so before we wrap things up and uh, and give everyone the HRPA code for the credit, uh, we do have a few minutes to, to do some Q&A. So I know there's a few questions in the uh, in the box and we'll get to those. I'll, I'll just mention uh, while I'm thinking of it, if you want to get into more depth on any of these topics or other things, we um, I've been running the uh, Advanced HR Law for HR Professionals course at Osgood for about 13 years now, and it's actually running next week. Uh, and we are, you know, myself and Nadia and Brittany in particular uh, are teaching on the first two days. So that's a great four-day course that we get into a lot of detail uh, with a lot of group discussion and a lot of problem solving. Uh, so if you're interested, feel free to email me, but I just wanted to mention that because that's kind of the opposite of this. This is a very high-level discussion. That's a very in-depth discussion. Uh, so having said that, I just, I'll, I'll take the first question while everyone kind of gets, uh, takes a, a breath, but I saw a Korean asked, what if an employee moved during COVID and is further away from the office and refuses to return to the office? Can the employer terminate? So I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Imagine in January, 2020, if we got that question and someone said, can I fire someone who refuses to come into the office? We would have thought they were absolutely crazy, which is not even a, a question. Uh, but now, you know, we're obviously well past that issue. And uh, Brittany has talked about some of the issues. Nadia talked about constructive dismissal. We've worked with a lot of clients in similar situations where they had people who decided that they don't need to live in the GTA where it's so expensive. They can live in a rural part of Ontario. They can live in a different province. They can live 
in Tahiti and then live on the beach every day. Uh, whatever it is, we've had that. Uh, but we've had situations where once it was safe to return to the office, they were expected to return. So as Nadia pointed out, I mean, you, you can insist that someone return to the office as long as they don't have a right to work from home, which can either be explicit in their contract or it could have accrued. And the longer we've been warning our clients, the longer that you let people work from home without making it very clear that that is temporary and that you reserve the right to bring them back, the risk, the greater the risk that they have accrued the right to work from home. But assuming that hasn't happened, then you can insist they return to work. And we've done that with many clients. And the messaging is fairly simple. We don't really care where you live, but you're expected in the office on Monday morning. And if you don't show up, you're essentially going to be deemed to abandon your job. Uh, so you certainly can, but you need to be mindful about whether the employee has the right, either explicit or implicit, to work remotely and, and whether they've accrued that right in the last couple of years. But thanks for the, the question, Corinne. Uh, who wants to take the next one? I can take the next one. Uh, it's kind of the flip side of your question. So this question is from uh, Carmen. And the question is, what happens if the employer decides to change office location more than 50 kilometers and now expects employees to go to the office on a more regular basis? Is this also considered constructive dismissal? So like Stuart said, a large part of it is going to depend on like what the contract says, whether or not you have policies in place, what communications were in place. Uh, were expectations communicated? Like, did employees know that this change in location was coming? Were they given appropriate notice of the change? Um, it's not just about making the change and having to pay an employee out if they allege constructive dismissal. There are a lot of creative ways that an employer can go about these sorts of things. So, for example, one of the things that I talked about was giving appropriate notice of big changes like this. Like I think anyone would agree that that is a fairly big change if you're changing office locations to more than 50 kilometers. Um, a judge would probably agree with that as well, that it is a fairly big change. But what it's going to come down to is what was in place, what was communicated, you know, was there anything in a contract? Uh, was there anything in a policy? Um, so it's largely going to depend, but it doesn't necessarily mean that just because it may constitute constructive dismissal that you have no way out. You could, for example, let employees work remotely for the time being, give them the appropriate notice that they need. And then at that point in time, it would become a requirement to essentially attend at that office location. But you have given them um, the appropriate notice that they're entitled to. Um, at law. So there are ways to go about it. Obviously, before making any big changes like that, you should get um, legal advice specifically for that scenario. And every individual employee uh, will probably have different entitlements depending on um, the factors that are applicable to their scenario. So be mindful of that. It's not going to be the same uh, same factors or same um, rights and entitlements for every single employee. Great. Thanks, Nadia. That was, that was really helpful. Who wants to take the next one? I can take the next one. Uh, we got a great question from Liliana, who was asking about accommodation to the point of undue hardship in a remote work environment. And what does that mean? Um, does that just mean we accommodate until a certain point or until we cannot? 
Um, so this is a really, really good question. I wanted to answer this live because I think it really hammers home the point that there really is no difference between a remote worker versus an in-office worker when it comes to something like assessing undue hardship when it comes to assessing the duty to accommodate. So the same criteria that you would use in assessing whether undue hardship has been met for an in-office employee is going to apply equally to a remote worker. Um, and what we want to remember here is that undue hardship is a very, very high standard to meet, right? I mean, it's right in the name, undue hardship, which means some hardship is expected and it is acceptable. And when we are assessing undue hardship, the, the there's really only a few things that we can look at, including the cost to the employer and health and safety issues that might apply. Um, so it's very, very limited in the in the sense of when is an undue hardship going to, or the level of undue hardship actually going to be reached. Um, so if you are in a situation where you are concerned that you may have reached that point where your your business is actually being harmed or it, it is interfering with your ability to continue the business as a result of the request for accommodation or the cost is prohibitive. Like, let's say the employer or the employee has requested, you know, the top of the line standing desk with a walking pad and the total cost is going to be $40,000. Um, you know, that might be unreasonable, um, but there might be other forms of accommodation we can consider in that in that context, right? There might be a cheaper standing test that we can look at that would achieve the same purpose, right? So if you are in a situation where you're facing this, I do strongly recommend that you reach out to your employment council. Uh, we're happy to assist with, with things like this. Um, it, it is going to be determined on a fact-specific individual basis. So I do encourage you to reach out if you're facing a situation like this. Great. Thanks, Brittany. And we got time for, for one more. So who wants to take the last one? I'd be happy to. So uh, we have a question from Tim uh, regarding vacation pay on wages, including commissions. Would this apply to someone who's been dismissed and has a salary continuance and commissions? I would think not because they're not an active employee, but I wanted to make sure. Um, in in most cases, if if an employee has been dismissed and they're on salary continuance and and continues to receive both pay salary and commissions, there would be vacation pay owing on those salary continuance payments. Um, it, there there's no requirement that uh, that they have to remain actively employed in order to be entitled to vacation pay as long as they're receiving um, as long as they're receiving. Um, payments as a result of their employment contract or as a result of the ESA, this this would include a statutory notice period, they would be entitled uh, to that vacation pay. Now, it, it could be a, a different story if there's been a, a settlement signed, if there's been a specific amount agreed to be paid that's inclusive of vacation pay pursuant to a signed settlement. Um, but the default would be yes, vacation pay has to be added to those amounts. Um, so if there's a if there's you know, a specific situation that you want evaluated, um, I would certainly recommend having a lawyer look at it. Our firm can can certainly look into it. But the, the default, unless there's some other circumstances, is certainly that that it would be payable. Right. Thanks, Alex. And th thanks for the question, Tim. And, and just one, one point, I just want to pick up on the active employment issue, because we've seen a lot of case law on that in the last couple of years. We've all seen the bonus plans, commission plans, that say you are not eligible to receive it unless you're actively employed on the day it's paid out. And courts don't like it, especially for things that have been accrued. If you've earned it, courts don't like it. You say you earned it in 2023, it wasn't paid out till February 2024, and you were let go in January, so you don't get it. Uh, so courts are really gonna be uh, critical of that wording. It's gotta be absolutely clear and brought to the individual's attention. So be cautious about that. 
Um, and just before we wrap up, I wanted to pick up on one thing that gets back to Brittany's presentation. So again, be very mindful of where someone is based. Just because a company is based in one province, if they have someone working solely in another province, they're governed by the laws of the province in which they worked. Uh, and, and Brittany mentioned the, uh, the Pay Transparency Act that came to force now in, in British Columbia. Interesting point that I saw someone else mention this morning, uh, which is that if you're doing a job posting, to which someone in BC might respond, then I would say you have to make sure you comply with that pay transparency requirement that you indicate the uh, the compensation. So be mindful if you're posting and looking for someone anywhere in Canada, because that would apply to someone in BC. So it's just a good example of how uh, nature of work and where we work has changed. But I want to want to wind things up now because I do want to let you guys go by one o'clock. So as you probably picked up over the last hour, we we like to be as strategic and proactive as possible when we work with our clients and starts with strong contracts and policies and procedures. Nadia mentioned our HR checkup, which is basically a review of all of those. And uh, one thing I'll mention, which I think differentiates us from most law firms, we're trying to get away from the billable hour as much as we can. So HR packages or starter packages we do on fixed fees. We also do other work like contract reviews on fixed fees. We're also starting to look at subscription arrangements where we can update your contracts and your policies automatically so you don't have to worry about making sure they're up to date and it can also be a, a sort of a pure retainer where you pay a fixed amount per month and you get uh, unlimited legal advice so there's all kinds of things we're looking to do and we're happy to talk about those um, and then I guess in terms of other things I'm not going to go through all the awards we've received although I'm quite proud of the the awards that we have uh, the last one was the Canadian HR award for best uh, labor and employment law boutique, which was a great night until we got stuck in an elevator for 45 minutes and trying to leave the event. Uh, most of our awards are not that uh, that interesting in terms of the actual recipient or re reception of those awards. Um, so let me close things out because we are just about one o'clock. So I want to thank everyone for tuning in. Thank Brittany, Nadia, Jeff and Alex again for doing a great job bringing together materials. And we want everyone to treat their employment relationships like legal relationships. And as Nadia said, and it's one of my favorite expressions, if you think you might need an employment lawyer, you probably do. Uh, so feel free to reach out to us. You should have a, a, an active relationship with an employment lawyer. And obviously, we'd be happy if that's our firm. So feel free to reach out. And uh, we're happy to talk. Also, follow us on our very active social media uh, on LinkedIn, on TikTok recently, on Instagram, on Facebook. Uh, we have our monthly show, Fire Away, uh, which we do, our YouTube channel, uh, and sign up to our newsletter. Uh, so feel free to email us if you want to get our monthly updates. Um, that's about all I want to say. So I'm going to get to the HRPA code. But before I do that, I've been warned that I must stop recording. So I'm going to stop recording.